We love green lights in life, on this highway of life, this autobahn of life that we're all on. We love green lights. They say go. Onward, forward, more please. Yep. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Out of boy, out of girl. Yellow lights slow us down. Red lights make us stop. We don't really like them. They interfere with our way. They interrupt us. But what I noticed in the writing of my book of my life, and I think this is, I believe this is true for, for everyone, is I noticed that those red and yellow lights in my life, my father dying, a year in Australia where I was alone and absolutely confused and frustrated and lost. Boy, I looked at things later in life. Green lights I did find later in life that I truly believe I there's no way I would have gotten those if I didn't have the red or yellow light in the past that had a lesson in it for me that I was supposed to learn. I'm Dan Shulman president and CEO of PayPal, and a longtime devotee of Krav Maga. Welcome to my podcast, Never Stand Still, where I explore some of the guiding principles I've learned in martial arts and interview world-class CEOs, creators, and changemakers about how those philosophies apply to their lives as they perform at the top of their game. No matter who you are or what you're doing in life, the stoplight metaphor is pretty apt. Green light means go, yellow means pause, red, stop. We get those lights for various things in our lives all the time. But learning to recognize the signals and follow the flow of traffic isn't necessarily easy. Most of us had to go to driver's ed to learn how to drive, and then we had to go to the DMV for a test, maybe even more than once. In today's episode, we're going to tap into how to identify and trust the traffic signals in our own lives. And here's Kelly Campbell with more. Hi, I'm Kelly Campbell. I've trained within the Krav Maga Worldwide System for over 20 years. I'm a fifth degree black belt and the highest ranking female instructor in the United States. In Krav Maga, recognizing your environment is so important. And that applies to regular life too. It can be something as simple as, well, the light is red and not green. So I'm going to wait to cross the street so I don't get hit by a car. Being aware of your environment and the general rules and practices will help keep you safe. And noticing your opponent's energy and how it differs from your own will help you identify whether you need to stay in the flow or break the rhythm to win the fight. I'm so excited for today's guest, the legendary Oscar-winning actor, producer, and author of the new book, Green Lights, Matthew McConaughey. Throughout his career, the public has had different ideas of who they think McConaughey is. First, much like his burnout, breakout role in Dazed and Confused, then rom-com leading man, and then the larger-than-life persona from his Lincoln commercials. But the truth is, he's a deeper thinker than he's ever gotten credit for. And the personal philosophies he lays out in his best-selling memoir, Green Lights, make that very clear. It's no mistake that Matthew McConaughey has become as successful as he has. He's learned to chase after his dreams through a path of non-resistance. Sure, going with the flow seems easy, but getting to the point where you can correctly identify the traffic signals that the universe is giving you is no small feat. 
Listen, I want to start off by saying a big congrats on the debut of your book, Green Lights. It must be hard for you to imagine that it spent 32 weeks on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, it is, Dan. You write something, you put a piece of art out there. Do you want it to succeed? And what does success mean? Does that mean it translates to people? Do I, if I do a movie, do I want people to go see it? I write a book, do I want people to read it? Damn right I do. Of is course. that why I wrote it? <laughs> no, but I, actually, you know, something happened to me about two weeks into writing it. I noticed that the more personal I got, and I said, look, just be extremely personal. Write this for you, Matthew. And then a little light went off my head. Like, oh, if you're writing it for you, it's not going to be for anyone else. Well, that's when I realized, no, the more you write it and you're honest with yourself, Matthew, the more it's going to speak to more humanity, which, hey, 35 weeks later, people still want to talk about it. I'll talk about this book and its contents and, and, until I'm in the grave, <laughs> if yeah. people want to talk about it. The ethos Matthew espouses in Green Lights is simple yet effective. And it seems so authentic to how he's lived his life. I wanted to know how he landed on the concept. So the title came basically about 45 days into writing it. And what I'd noticed is, you know, green lights, just the literal term. We love green lights in life on this highway of life, this Autobahn of life that we're all on. We love green lights. They say go. Onward, forward, more, please. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Out of boy, out of girl. Amen. Move forward. We love them. Yellow lights slow us down. Red lights make us stop. We don't really like them. They interfere with our way. They interrupt us. They make us get introspective. They make us look over our shoulder for a minute. They make us take pause. That's what a yellow light does. A red light actually stops us in our tracks. That can be death. That can be getting fired. That can be getting sick. You know, health. You can get major red lights. But what I noticed in the writing of my book of my life, and I think this is, I believe this is true for, for everyone, is I noticed that those red and yellow lights in my life, my father dying, a year in Australia where I was alone and absolutely confused and frustrated and lost. Boy, I looked at things later in life that I truly believe I would not, green lights I did find later in life that I truly believe, I, there's no way I would have gotten those if I didn't have the red or yellow light in the past that had a lesson in it for me that I was supposed to learn. And so when do we learn the lessons of the yellow and red lights? When do we learn them? Sometimes we know when we're in a pickle, we're like, there's a lesson here. I'm, I just trust it. Sometimes we don't know that. And we're like, why the hell am I in this situation? This will never make sense. Sometimes we learn it tomorrow. Sometimes we learn next week, next month, next year, 20 years down the road. Some of these lessons, I suppose we're going to learn and realize on our deathbed. And I'm also here to purchase that I don't think we're going to see the green light assets of our red and yellow lights in this lifetime. And I don't think we'll see all of them. I think maybe our great, great grandkids will realize the assets of our hardships in this life later on. So the idea is that and why the cover is basically three green lights is that in the rearview mirror of life, the red and yellows are green as well. Now that is profound. The idea that perhaps the wisdom we gain from our red and yellow lights, the struggles we face in our lives will be a benefit in some way for future generations. That's such a beautiful framing that makes it somewhat easier to endure hardships. But of course, we can't talk about hardship without talking about privilege. It's interesting, that is actually a question I wanted to ask you because I was thinking about, you know, a lot of people reading the book might go, well, Matthew, he's had a lot of green lights in his life. You know, look at him. 
it's all successful. You know, I wish I could be like him. But, you know, a lot of people have all these red lights in their life. And they might say, look, you know, I've got a lot more red lights than green lights. What would you say to somebody who says, well, you know, I got a lot of red lights. First off, let me say, am I in a privileged position? Is my pantry full? Did I go through COVID and was I able to move my mother into our house and me not have to work today to pay my rent tomorrow? Yes, sir. Yep, that's a privileged position. To those that are in a lot of red lights, all right, one is when faced with the inevitable, we got to get relative. And one, start to measure what red lights were actually yellow, but I created the drama or I compounded them and turned them red. You know, where did that headache become a tumor? Where did that fatigue become a disease in my life or, or whatever that is? And start to compartmentalize. Well, which ones did I create? Okay, I can do something about those. And which ones are inevitable, which, man, I can't do anything about those. This is just my damn given circumstance. So pivot or persist or wave the white flag. Sometimes we get through a red light by sitting there and waiting that son of a gun out. Sometimes we get through a yellow light by actually pausing to let it turn red because we need the stop in our life. We need the intervention. Well, sometimes we don't need to give that crisis credit. So put the pedal to the metal and blow that damn thing, man. Blow the yellow light. Drive through it. You know, there's a difference between a victim. We're all victims. It's our choice whether we choose to be victimized by situations, I do believe. And I think it's just a mental approach. And, you know, if, if we're getting a lot of red lights and then we're sitting there going, man, I'm pounded by red lights. They're everywhere. I would say this in the theory of relativity. Admit that it's black. And once you know it's black and just call it out, it's black. It ain't near as dark once you just name it. So does that solve getting out of relax? No, but it does help us find, because we got a lot more fuel and energy in us mentally, spiritually, and, and, and physically than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. We have a capacity to go further and out endure things longer than we give ourselves credit for. We have more capacity to pivot and say, wait a minute, I'm going to back up and have a 50,000 foot view at my life right now. I wonder why I keep banging my damn head up against these walls. We have a more capacity than we give ourselves credit for. Now, is that a solution? No, I'm big on self-reliance and self-determination. And I understand that that's not totally it. The outside world does unto us as well, fairly and unfairly. Some have better fortune than others at different times in their life. But I would also say this, you don't give up hope. Because the alternative to give up hope there's just no ROI in it. No, no. There's just no residual ever to go, I give, I quit. That is so true. In my Krav Maga practice, one of the things my instructor tells me is that you can't control what's going to happen in the fight or some of the circumstances in your life. But what you can control is how you react to it. And no matter how hard you get hit, you usually have the ability to get back up and keep fighting. It seems like a lot of the stories in the book, you know, reminded me of, of you know, I forget who came up with the same, but you know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Right, and, right. and I'm just wondering like, how much in your life do you think was kind of luck or really, it wasn't really luck. It was just really hard work that you kept going at and it turned into things that seemed fortunate. Well, as you know, look, going forward's a mystery, looking back's a science. All the dots connect <laughs> now to getting to where we are right now. 
You know, at the time it was like, what the hell, man? How'd this happen? This green light fell in my lap or I was in the right place at the right time. I do look back at times where I succeeded, where I noticed I was in the right time and took advantage of it and went up to that person. When I went to that, met Don Phillips in a bar in Austin, Texas, and the bartender told me he's, a, he's in town as a casting director. I went and introduced myself. Four hours later, we got kicked out of the bar, hadn't talked anything about acting, but I didn't go over there just to have drinks with the guy. I went over there because I knew he was in town casting roles. Now, mind you, that subject didn't come up till five hours later, but I went with intention. When I went and sat down with Joel Schumacher to talk about uh, a role that he had cast me in in Time to Kill, which was like the 12th leading role, and I wanted the lead, I went into that meeting with the intention of going, I think I should play the lead. I didn't know where my gap was going to come in to maybe get that in the conversation, but I said, shit, let me just throw it out. The worst he can go is laugh and go, no way, which is what he did. (laughs) He laughed and said, no way. And then a whole bunch of things that I couldn't control fell in my lap. Other people that were cast in the movie had big hits come out so the studio could rely on their star power, which gave the studio sort of uh, uh, an opening window to say, well, maybe we can go with an unknown in the lead. All kinds of things. I don't, I'm not arrogant enough to call it luck. I'm not arrogant enough to say that I regulated and determined all of it either. Timing is a lot of it. I have known, though, I have also had great successes in my life where I called the shot. I put the stake out there and said, I'm going to that. By hook or by crook, I'm getting there. And then achieved it. But then I got to say this. I've had other things where I just didn't know where the hell I was going. I just put on my damn shoes, tied them and got out the door and said, I don't even know what I'm uh, what I'm even looking for, what I'm supposed to find. I just got to go engage. And some of the most glorious and wonderful, beautiful things in my life have happened to me just by going, I'm taking a one-way ticket to limbo, but at least I'm going to have my eyes open. But what about the times when we're on top? Sometimes those are the hardest. Why do we tend to trip ourselves up when things are going our way and life is good? There's this chapter in your book. I was like, I think it was called The Art of Downhill Running, something like that. Running downhill, yeah. Yeah, running (laughs) downhill. And basically the way I thought about it, it was sort of like, don't mess up if things are going well. And I think it's like a philosophy (laughs) we can all like, because we all kind of like go, wait, things are going too well, but maybe I better do something different. Can you talk a little bit about that? Look, you know the old story of Icarus, right? Takes his sun yeah, off the fire. Yeah. Don't go too close to the sun. The sun will melt your wax and your wings and you'll drop. I think most of us suffer from the opposite of that. Is like, we sit there and go, ooh, it's getting hot. The sun's going to melt my wax. And you go, hey, buddy, it ain't even 45 degrees. <laughs> yeah. It ain't even close to getting warm. There's so much further to go. It's what I also mean when I say a roof is a man-made thing. We put these, more. there are these mortal man-made things we put over ourselves and our own belief in ourselves and potential. And I battle with it all the time. And it's actually an arrogant thing to do to ourselves because who the hell are we to say, that's about as good as it can get. This is about as high and as wide as I can fly. And if we're tapping into the 11th percent of our brain sometimes, you got 89% more. We can go so much further and wider than we mortally give ourselves credit for. I think we suffer from the opposite of Icarus's problem. But there is, I've done it. I've choked at that finish line. Yeah. You know, it's uh, what Bo Jackson, he was great. He wasn't trying to cross the goal line. He ran across the goal line through the end zone and up the tunnel. You know, snipers don't aim at the target. They aim on the other side 
of it. And that's what I mean by those when I use the term immortal finish lines. If we rose, did nothing but rise at our highest speed right now through the rest of our maybe what 60 years, we're still not going to get to the finish line, ultimate finish line. We're not even getting halfway there. That's even arrogant to say it's even getting halfway there. So there's so much further and higher we can go. But I've done it before. Tripped myself running downhill. Oh, my gosh. This is too good. This is too good. Didn't step in a pothole. Crossed my leg over. Bam. Face planted. Broke my nose. Oh, jeez. What'd you do that for? Because as soon as I got up, I look up. I'm like, damn it. There's a hill coming anyway right here. I didn't need to trip myself. It's going to get hard anyway. (laughs) There are plenty of obstacles ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to put them in front of ourselves. Going with the flow and being attuned to the traffic lights in your journey is great. But what about those times when you want to make a big change in your life? And maybe no one's giving you the green light, but the signal coming from within you is too strong to ignore. You know, people may not realize, but you've had a bunch of change in your life. I mean, you've taken risks and risks that, you know, we're not assured we're going to play out. I mean, I think one of them was when you said like, okay, I want to move from being like a leading man in like rom-com and I want to be a dramatic actor, you know? <laughs> and you basically said like, that's what I want to do. And by the way, there was nobody who was saying at the time, all right, here's like 20 roles where you can go and do that. So like, how did you have the conviction and courage to yeah. go do that when nobody was saying that was the right move yeah. for you? Yeah, and nobody was. And trust me, my blood family, my two brothers and my mama at the time, my dad was already moved on. When I told them that's what I was going to do, they were like, little brother, what is your major <laughs> malfunction? What is your problem? Talk about tripping yourself running downhill. They were saying you are tripping yourself running downhill. You own the zone of rom-coms and now you're saying, no, I'm not doing those? I said, yes. Now, it was a risk. I was buying a one-way ticket maybe out of Hollywood, but I had just had a son. And you have children? Yeah, I got two. Yeah. Is man ever more masculine and clear in the heart, the head and the heart more clear than after your firstborn? It's unbelievable. It's like a time to quadruple down on your instincts because they're so aligned with what's true and right for you. And so my life was extremely vital. The pain, the anger, the joy, the happiness, the laughter, the bandwidth, the ceiling and the basement of my life and emotions were full. I felt more alive than ever had. Well, in my work, inherently in the structure of a romantic comedy, the bandwidth of emotions is somewhat compressed. You can't get too high and you can't get too low. You got to keep yep. the boat afloat. It's lightweight on purpose. You skip from cloud to cloud. Don't really mean it. Don't hang your hat on humanity. Don't get too happy. Don't get too sad or you'll sink the ship. Da, da, da. Well, I was like, damn it. I feel like my life's more vital than my work. And I remember looking in the mirror and going, well, McConaughey, it's got to be one way or the other. Be glad it's that way. But then I did say I want to see if my work can challenge the vitality of my life. And I said, well, I'm not going to get it in rom-coms. And that's going to live in dramas. Dramas are where you hang your hat on reality. And it's basically like, how do you feel about it? In a drama, that's really a question to each actor. How do you feel about it? And go for it. Get as mad or as joyful or laugh as loud and love as hard as you want. Well, those dramas were not being offered. Nowhere. No matter how much of a pay cut I want to take. So I said, well, if I can't do what I want to do, I'm going to quit doing what I've been doing. So no more rom-coms. Well, the first six months, nothing came in but rom-coms. I said no to everything. I think you remember that little story in there. There was one that came in with an $8 million offer. I read it. I said no. Came back with a $10 million offer. I didn't read it. I said no. Came back with a $12 million offer. I said no, thank you. said no. They came back with a $14.5 million offer. What did I say? 
Let me read that thing again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Dan, it was the exact same words as the original script that I passed on for eight million. Exact same words, but it was yeah. a better script. Yeah. It was funnier. <laughs> I had more angles of how I could make it work, everything. Anyway, I read it again, ultimately passed. That sent a little bit, and my, my hunch is that that sent a little bit of an invisible lightning bolt through Hollywood that, oh, McConaughey's not bluffing. Yeah. He's really not doing wrong. So what happened? Nothing comes in for a year. I call my agent every week. He goes, buddy, I've not even heard your name. <laughs> so now I'm like, I might have just wrote my ticket out of Hollywood. I better think of another career. And I did. I started thinking about what I wanted to be a teacher, a coach, a wildlife guide. What did I want to do? Well, right about that time when I shook hands with maybe taking another path through life. Mm -hmm. Now, this is almost two years later after I quit doing rom-coms. Phone rings. Well, guess who now, after 22 months of being gone, not in a theater in a rom-com, not in your living room in the TV in a rom-com, not on the beach shirtless in Malibu, which made people think I was living a rom-com life anyway. I got anonymity. Where the hell's McConaughey been? Well, in the where's he been came, you know who'd be an interesting actor to play this role in this drama? Matthew McConaughey. Well, I answered that call. They came and I, Camilla and I said, let's get after it. And I just went back to back to back and started doing dramas for that, well, the last 12 years. Yeah. I think it's just a great story for everyone to hear. Unbrand to rebrand. Yeah, you know? exactly. You were there. Yeah. You were not there. Right. And then you recreated yourself. Yeah. One of my favorite things I discovered in preparing for my interview with Matthew is that he's kept a journal for much of his life. Journaling is said to be good for mental health and decision-making. When Matthew talks about his journaling practice, it's clear that it's been a key mode of self-discovery and analysis for him over the years, and maybe even helped him navigate the spotlight without losing himself. Hey, you know, one thing that I don't think people will realize is this book wasn't where you started writing. I think I read something like you've kept a journal for like 36 years, something 36, like that. Yeah. I remember trying to keep a journal and I did it for like three or four days and then I stopped. So like, what is it that kind of like, motivated you to start and what motivates you to like keep on writing in that right. journal after so many years? Well, it started off as a sort of habit that I said, I think this is what I need to do. Mind you, at 14 years old, I started writing about the same thing anybody writes in journal. <laughs> you know, why do I got pimples on my face? Why yeah. did Gretchen break up with me? Yeah. All that stuff, you know? But then I, I kept writing and I got into late high school and into college. And I started writing down things that I thought were odd or original about myself, idiosyncrasies, meaning I'd be in a theater watching a movie and, and I would laugh out loud at a joke and then get self-conscious because nobody else in the theater laughed. But then the joke that the entire theater laughed at, I'd be like, that's not that funny. Mm. I would notice that I wouldn't cry at funerals, but I'd cry at birth. And so I started writing these things down going, are you odd, McConaughey? Are you weird? And I, then I said, well, hang in there. And then got the confidence to say, well, no, just double down on any way that you may be different and accept that. If it's not tyrannical and it's not being harmful to yourself and mankind, just accept that as who you are. Then... As we all know, when you do write things down, we usually go to journals when we're frustrated or confused or trying to figure shit out. Yep. I remember telling myself, because I got in a time in college where I was very successful. I was catching green lights, making the grades, relationships were good, had a job, money in my pocket, everybody was happy, I was rolling, and I quit going to my journal. 
And what do we do when things are going well? We don't want to write it down because why do we need to? We're never going to forget it because this is how it is from now on. I figured it out. Negatory. So I remember saying, write this down because you might forget what you're doing. And I was writing down my habits. Well, sure enough, six months later, I get in another rut. I was able to go back to the journal and go, what was I, what happened? What I changed? Because man, the last six months before this, I was rolling and I did find habits that I changed. I was hanging out with different people. I was getting less sleep. Maybe I was having more to drink at night when I went out. Whatever it was, I said, oh, let's rearrange and recalibrate and go back to the habits you have when you're rolling. And did it solve the problem? No, but it sure as hell helped me get realigned and find my frequency again. Yeah. And so now I just write out of pure, just if I get an idea, hear a word, get an inspiration, I just jot it down. At the end of each interview, I always ask guests about how they got up again after a particularly hard hit in life. The reality is no matter how many green lights someone has gotten in life, they've also had some really difficult struggles to overcome. And Matthew McConaughey is no different. Well, let me go to, look, a simple one is my dad died. Yeah. Now I physically lose my crutch. I physically lose the one person in this world that's bigger than government or law that I know will have my back if the shit really hits the fan. Well, now he's gone. And I'm like, whoa, you better get your peripheral vision going, buddy. You better get your chin up in your in your heart high and start being the man that your dad's been trying to teach you to be instead of trying to act like the man that your dad's yeah. been trying to do. Because he ain't there to have your back. That would be a big one, which really kick-started me to have the courage and the confidence to go, you better start owning yourself, Matthew. You better start owning yourself. And I became much less fearful of things in the world. Things that I looked up and revered in the world. Fame, money, people. The reverence came down to eye level. I still had full respect for him, but I was looking him in the eye. Things that I patronized and looked down on in the world before, it's like, oh, that's beneath me. (laughs) Look at those dumbasses. Rose up, and I looked him in the eye. And I remember writing, Boy, the world is flat. I can see further and wider and more clearly than I could ever see before. And that is directly relatable to my father moving on. Who knows if he'd still been alive, how much I would have kept kind of half-assed him trying to act like the man I wanted to be because he was my crutch. He was my safety net. And so that was a green light that came out of that big red light. Another one, though, would be the year in Australia. I was lost in that year. I was living in the middle of nowhere with a very odd family and no one to measure my beliefs off. I was at 19 years old, just finding my identity, but I had no one. I had no friends. I had no girlfriends. I had no truck. I had no golf clubs. I had no allowance. I didn't have my mom and dad. I didn't have my brothers. I just had me. And that's when I really doubled down on the writing because I was my only buddy and the pen was my only friend. Yeah. So I would write 12 page letters to myself and return a 14 page <laughs> letter to myself. Oh, I was, I was, Spinning, man. And the the writing was getting smaller and smaller. And the run-on sentences were getting longer and longer. I was imploding. But I had gone over that year and shook hands with the Rotary Club that sent me over. They wanted me to sign a contract that I would stay for a year. And I said, I'm not signing a contract. And they go, no, you need to because you're going to get homesick. You don't want to come home. I said, no, I'll shake your hand on it. Which is something my dad had always said. A handshake deals good as can be. I shook hands on it that I would not come back. Well, while I was imploding, I never let myself even fathom that going back was an option. I was like, I'm here, man. 
there's got to be a gift at the end of this penance, this sacrifice that I'm making. The worse it got, and with each day, the longer it went on, I started to have this little inside me, this bit of honor and pride coming up, like I did it another day. I, I made it another day. And I'm like, with each day this adds up, I was like, I'm getting calluses. I'm getting stronger. My heart's getting bigger. I mean, and it was true. I didn't really realize it till afterwards, but boy, there were things I ran into after that year that looked hard or would have looked hard before that year. Other people said, there's no way we can endure this situation. I'd be like, oh shit, we got this, dude. No, yeah. let's, let's just go one, one minute at a time, one day at a time, and we got this. That I would not have had that perspective if I wouldn't have had that year. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I don't think any of us can say we haven't had something like really traumatic happen to us at some point. And, you know, people always ask me like, you know, how are you so cool, calm and collected in like, like this, you know, big business thing going on, whatever it may be. And it's because it's not even close to some of the things that we've gone through. And those are really kind of lessons that are really hard in the present, but to your point, really stay with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure catching up and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. I, I do too. But before we wrapped, Matthew turned the tables and had a question for me. Hey, I got a question for you. In your approach, never standing still. Uh, my hunch is that you don't mean always be looking for something new. Like, can you be in movement without physically moving? Meaning, you know, you got family, I got family. People ask me all the time, what are your new goals? I go, well, man, I don't have a lot of new goals as much as I want my roots to grow wider and deeper in the ones that I've already established. Yeah. So that's not necessarily standing still, but it's not something new. Yeah. I just want to get more quality. I want, I want, I want my garden to have more fresh vegetables and fruit in it so that all the butterflies keep coming to me. I don't want necessarily a bigger one with less quality produce. I want to have really good produce with what I got. And that wouldn't necessarily be standing still. At the same time, maybe I didn't come up with something new to do. Yeah. No, it's a great question. And, you know, the initial thing, you know, I've been doing martial arts forever, was about fighting. You know, it's kind of like if you just, like, stand in front of somebody and you face off on them because you're like your testosterone kicks in and you're, you're like, just I'm going to go right at somebody. That's the worst way to fight. You're just going to get hit. And that's you always got to be like, hit, move, go. But like to me, the way it translates into life, the way that I think about it is I don't want to get stale in the way I'm thinking. Like my kids grow up. Like, you know, my daughter today, like is so different than like, you know, the one-year-old I was changing their diapers. Like, you know, she's a young woman right now. She's thinking about things in the world that are so different. You know, you got to evolve to stay relevant, to stay current, to grow. Right. going forward and like you know I, I do think we have to have these roots and i do think we need to have a stillness within ourselves i think that's really healthy but at the same time i like i know i've never got it down pat like i gotta constantly heard. learn you know heard. that's how heard. i think about it heard heard you know the best definition i've ever heard of humility and humility was a word i struggled with for decades because yeah. i didn't know how to maintain confidence with it with my understanding of it then. And then I heard this definition, humility is knowing we have more to learn. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, I'm in the, I'm in the humble stage. I get it now. I can play offense with that. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. It's so <laughs> damn true. <laughs> yes, sir.
Good stuff. All right, man. Hey, look forward to seeing you in person. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Okay, you betcha, Matthew. Take care. Ciao. Bye-bye. I absolutely love that Matthew turned the tables and had that follow-up question. To me, it's emblematic of his overall deepness. He's always thinking and he's always keeping his eye on the flow of traffic in his life to make sure that he's able to get where he wants to go. So what can you take away from this episode to get yourself in the flow? How can you learn to recognize when life is giving you the green light and not trip yourself up? Can you look for positive learning experiences from your red and yellow light struggles? And when you feel a shift inside yourself, do you have the confidence to navigate through that change, even if it feels like you're stuck in a traffic jam? I'm Dan Shulman. Thanks for listening to this edition of Never Stand Still. Kida. Life is in the little things. My dad once told me that life is infinite if you live it in the little moments. Heard. Yeah. Heard. Like that. <laughs>